Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to our podcast. Hey, everybody. Tis another episode here to answer your questions. Yes. It is fall here in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Well, it's fall in the whole northern hemisphere, not just in Pennsylvania. How about that? But my point, <laughs> my point is that here in Pennsylvania, we're right about, when you are hearing this podcast, we will be right at peak leave color and it's gorgeous. Yeah. Our, our little daughter, Grace, she's 10. No, she's, darn it, she's 11. Sorry, Grace, if you're listening. Grace is 11, and she's pulling all these beautiful colors off the ground and bringing them to me. Collecting all the beautiful leaves. The beautiful leaves, and we, we love to hold them up to the sun and see the veins in there and the different kinds of colors. And mm-hmm. We have heard, I, I haven't had so much firsthand experience with this, but a friend of mine tells me that Pumpkin spice is becoming rather polarizing. Uh-huh. Have you heard about this? Yeah, well, I, it is a little bit excessive. You know, like September 1st, it seems like every gas station, every breakfast cereal, everything is advertising something in, in the pumpkin okay. spice I variety. don't know how polarizing it is. I'm just going to say this. <laughs> just recently, I had a pumpkin beer, pumpkin spice beer. Oh, yeah. At, you told me yeah, about that. Yeah, at Sam's oh, here in, yes. in town. We need to go get the, some and more in of fact, that. In fact, I wrote down, this is, I'm not getting any kickbacks for this, but I'm telling you, <laughs> this was so delicious. I wrote down on my phone, here it is, Atomic Pumpkin Voodoo Ranger Beer. Atomic Pumpkin Voodoo Ranger? Yeah, I don't know if you have to, you know, go to confession afterwards because of the <laughs> voodoo thing. Uh, I'm hoping not, but... It was one of the most delicious beers I've ever had in my life. Pumpkin mm. spice, atomic pumpkin glory on my tongue. <laughs> it had this kind of like, it was a beer, obviously, but it had this like spicy kick to it that kind of grabbed you in the back of the tongue. So fall colors, pumpkin spice polarization, <laughs> and pumpkin beer. I just, I really Loved it. Yeah. Well, there are lots of things to love about fall. Yeah. The- well, I think it's if I had to had to pick, I love all the seasons. Mm-hmm. I love living in Pennsylvania, the change of seasons. But if I had to had to pick, I'd probably pick fall. Yeah. You get excited when there's a crisp a feeling crisp in the feeling air in the and air. The, the smell of the leaves. We actually had a really hot day recently. Like it got to 90 degrees or something. And I remember how strange it felt, crunching yeah. leaves under my and, feet and, and feeling, feeling the summer yeah. heat. Didn't like it. The combination that's correct, you know, would be the crunchy leaves and the crisp exactly. feeling in the air. That's wonderful. And this, there's smells and foods that we enjoy besides pumpkin beer. And, you know, I cannot say I go for pumpkin spice flavored Cheerios necessarily. No. But we do make pumpkin soup and pumpkin bread. and You make awesome pumpkin bread. Thank you. And, and I love it when it's just a little sauce. underdone. You get a little goo oh, in the, the goo middle. in the middle, of, yeah. that's right. And they actually, around here, they sell these, they call them neck pumpkins. It, it looks like butternut squash that got super stretched out and curled up in like a horseshoe shape. It would look really weird to most of you, but that is something that is commonly grown here in Pennsylvania, neck pumpkins. And some people grow them in their gardens and sell them at the side of the road for a dollar. You know, it's this huge thing. You buy it and cook it up and you make two 
pots of soup out of that $1 neck pumpkin. So they're kind of fun things living in the country and in Pennsylvania and just delving into what the season offers with, you know, decorating with pumpkins and gourds, which I haven't done that yet, but I'm going to do it. I'm such a procrastinator. (laughs) Anyway, we did have pumpkin soup already, so that's good. Probably enough of our pumpkin fall business. (laughs) Shall we get back? Let's get back. This is a cliffhanger episode. Yes. You didn't come on here to listen to our talk about pumpkins. Right. Let me talk to you about our anonymous question. Let's go back to our anonymous question. And we did begin to answer this in our last episode, for those of you that didn't hear the previous episode, but I think... You know, we'll we'll jump back in here. I'm going to repeat the question for um, this episode now. So it was a question from an anonymous wife who said, My husband and I have been married for 30 years. Living our Catholicism as married persons is very important to us. Our marital relations have rarely been easy, but we keep trying because we love each other and want to honor our spousal relationship. Most recently, I've had some medical issues and surgery, which has made having intercourse temporarily not possible. It has been over six months since we tried. We've gradually grown less affectionate because I don't want to unfairly arouse my husband. Sometimes I'm relieved, but I feel guilty about that. And when we shared this question on the last episode, I know it struck you in terms of our time available that there was probably a lot to say and not a lot of time. But you did start out by just talking about more possibilities for affection in marriage beyond marital affection leading to intercourse. And I know that that's a concept we've talked about before in our podcast, and I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. I tend to hear more of the mindset of, you know, well, find other ways to be together, play a game or go for a walk, kind of like these non-affectionate options. Mm -hmm. And that hasn't resonated with us as a couple to just replace, you know, our marital embrace with something just non-affectionate and bond in non-physical ways. That hasn't been what has been a blessing to us as a married couple. And we've found, you know, we've shared that at times with other people. And I guess we want to talk more about that. Yeah. And obviously we want to make room for lots uh, of people's uh, experience in married life Mm -hmm. and not hold out our marriage as this is the way it should be. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, we can only speak from our, our own experience here. And I think we have experienced some things that may be helpful to listeners out there. So in that light, we can we can maybe share a little bit of what we've been through. We have had times in our married life where we've needed extended times of abstinence. And, you know, nobody looks forward to that with, you know, and well, maybe a rewind, maybe some people do look forward to that with, <laughs> if they have certain real struggles in their in their marital union. But you know, in a normal relationship where sexual union is delighted in and it's part of the, the joy of being married, people do not look forward to extended times of abstinence. So there are challenges that come with that. And I think sometimes we can look at it as, oh, we were, we're not going to be having sexual intercourse, so, um, you know, maybe we need to sleep in separate rooms. I've heard stories of, of spouses doing that. I've heard stories of the wife will no longer, you know, get in the shower if her husband's in the bathroom because she doesn't want him to see her naked if they're not going to be able to have intercourse. And to me, that's 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 of just foreign to our experience that 
we are called to a, a freedom that I, I don't know that is often held out to people. And that's what I'd, I'd like to do in, in my response. I could go in many directions with my response, but I'd like to hold out the real possibility of a freedom that allows a closeness, an intimacy, a physical closeness. I, I don't know if this sounds just so unusual to people out there, but I'd like to say and hold out, it's been our experience, and, and here I even feel a little strange saying this in a public forum, because it's so close to us and intimate for us, but in times of abstinence, there have been experiences of just being naked together, being close skin to skin. We read it. What was that book we read years ago that recommended? Do you remember mm, what it was called? I don't. I, I feel like it was a marriage encounter book. It was. It was a book put out by Marriage Encounter, yeah. and I wish I could give credit to the people who wrote the book because I, I, I can't remember it. But it stayed with us. We were newlyweds and we read this book and they talked about skin to skin time mm -hmm. where the intention is not to have intercourse, but to, to be naked with one another and have a closeness of skin to skin that facilitated a deep spiritual intimacy through the physical closeness. And I remember reading that book and thinking, what a, what a beautiful suggestion Mm -hmm. And I'm going to hold that out to to every married couple out there that this is a real possibility of tenderness, of closeness, of bringing barriers down, of creating a a, a, a physical intimacy that is that is not leading to intercourse, but is nonetheless deeply marital. You're not going to be naked skin to skin with anybody right. else but your spouse. It's deeply marital, and it's deeply bonding. But uh, I wonder, though, if, if our listeners, or at least maybe this questioner, there's probably a gap between that as a possibility and what she's experiencing in her marriage. And I wonder, Wendy, if you have any thoughts to, to speak into that. Yeah, gap. thanks. I, I am sensing that, that it could be something that we should be cautious about is kind of holding out some kind of image that, well, that's what our marriage has to become. You know, that's yeah. what we have to do, rather than an honest, just tuning into the unique individuals who are united in this particular marriage, in any particular marriage, and first of all, having conversation about the needs and desires of each heart, which don't always match up perfectly. Yeah, and the, the, I want to say this, there's a word for that, that what you're getting at, I learned from John Paul II, he, he speaks of a culture of marital relations, mm -hmm. and every marriage has its own culture of relations. And if you take, it's like, um, you know, speaking a different language from a different culture. If you can't just plop our marital culture on somebody else. It right. might be a foreign language to them. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a need. And I'm, I, if people want to learn that language that we're calling skin to skin, it might not be something you could just plop in there. It'd be something, a language you would need to learn. Mm -hmm. Is that the point you're getting at? Yeah, like a step-by-step step and an acceptance of one another. Where, I, right, right where they are and journeying with one another. When I read Theology of the Body, I remember being so struck in um, JP2's description of the the man's first sight of the woman. And he was drawing out the acceptance of his wife as the gift the Lord was giving to him, that it spoke to me of a deep security in that acceptance. And 
the last thing we'd want to do in responding to this question would be to introduce a pressure on a couple that right. would produce the opposite, you right. know, an right. insecurity. Rather, the spirit is moving in bringing, you know, a deeper acceptance of one another. And I think one of the things, you know, this is an insightful wife who's bringing out some of the complexity of, of being married to mm-hmm. one another that, you know, talking about the relations have rarely been easy. You know, I think that's referencing a lot of journeying together throughout the years of your marriage. And, and she also said, which struck me, is that although it's rarely been easy, they keep trying. They keep trying. Which yes. is beautiful. It is. It really is. So I had said this when we started uh, answering the question before, but I want to bring it up again that a lot of knowing how to proceed can be the fruit of prayer. Mm-hmm. And that asking the Lord, what is your will for us at this time? And how can we live in your will for us? So if you're in a time of having to abstain, and one of the things that touches me is that this wife is saying, we've gradually grown less affectionate. And to recognize, well, that's probably not good for us as a couple. How can we address that without creating another problem that maybe would create distance in another way. So, those are the sensitive steps that we as ministers of our sacrament are taking together. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the Lord gives us insights into our own heart that enable us to recognize the need of our spouse in a new way. We experience this, that nudge of the Holy Spirit, like, reach out, come out of yourself toward the other, and sensitivity and compassion and with that knowledge that we have from being married for so long, bring that to allow us to cooperate with what God is doing in our marriage right now. I'll say one final thing here, that the kind of intimacy that we're all called to in married life and the thing that often prevents it, well, let me me say first, the kind of intimacy we're called to requires self-mastery. And the thing that often present, prevents it is the lack of self-mastery. And I, I'm not saying this with, with any sense of condemnation, but rather invitation that self-mastery is really possible and it affords an intimacy that is not based on merely some trigger that my hormones got tapped and now I need to indulge and find satisfaction for these desires in me. But Rather, self-mastery, and by self-mastery we mean my sexual desires are not in control of me, I am in control of them, and I can direct them towards the true, the good, and the beautiful. That true marital intimacy is only possible with self-mastery. Self-mastery here is like, and it it requires a real discipline, but it's the discipline of to draw an analogy, it's like the discipline of a musician or the discipline of an athlete that makes that golf swing just seem effortless or that slam dunk of the basketball seem effortless. But behind that effortless looking slam dunk of the basketball is years and years and years of discipline and practice and sacrifice. Similarly, ye- behind the uh, the beautiful music of a concert pianist is years and years and years of sacrifice, discipline. But that discipline is is worth it for the beautiful music. Similarly, in in married love, 
to to have a a skin to skin intimacy that the couple knows isn't going to lead to intercourse that takes a, a discipline, that takes a self-sacrifice, that takes a mastery that is not easily acquired. And the catechism says, and life bears it out to be true, that self-mastery is a long and exacting work, uh, and it requires renewed effort at every stage of the journey. Those who take up that, that journey of self-mastery are richly, richly rewarded by the freedom that comes from being master of oneself. So I would hold out to this married couple an invitation to learn more what it means to grow in self-mastery. And from one perspective, John Paul II's theology of the body is precisely that. It's a call to live the freedom for which Christ has set us free, which is another way of talking about self-mastery. So I would urge you, if you haven't already, one, maybe one way to grow in intimacy with your husband here and look back at your 30 years, maybe with a new light and new insight, would be to do a study together of John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Maybe read uh, Theology of the Body for Beginners together, reflect on the discussion questions together, or if you prefer to watch videos uh, just go on YouTube and start watching Theology of the Body videos on mm. YouTube. Um, that could be a, a, a blessing for you. Those are great thoughts. Very practical. I think we'll go on, yeah. Okay. For the sake of time, I think we need to. Okay. Very good. So I have a question from Victoria. She starts out, hello, Wendy and Christopher. Thank you so much for this podcast. You're welcome so <laughs> much, Victoria. I absolutely love it, she says. I would like to ask a question very close to my heart. It has haunted me mm. for some strange reason since I was young, and I don't know why. My question is about the original sin, and I guess about the whole meaning of salvation. Would you explain to me why is the responsibility of Adam and Eve's sin also mine? Why did all humanity fall from grace because of the sin of the original couple? And then what is the logic underlying the statement that Jesus paid for our sins with his suffering. I do not understand how Adam and Eve's sin is related to us, or to me, I guess. And why do I have to pay for what they did? There's a little more to the question. Is it mm -hmm. getting too long, or can I? Uh, yeah, let me let me let me jump in with some All of right. these initial All questions. Right. And Victoria, this is a great question. Yeah, these are great questions, and and let me preface everything I say by acknowledging. These are profound, deep mysteries. There's no way in a podcast format I could exhaust answers to these questions, and nor could I ever exhaust answers to these questions, even if I had limitless time hmm. to try to talk about it, because we're, we're talking about some deep things. But I will offer a little bit of food for thought. How is it that we have inherited original sin uh, we have inherited the consequence. That would be a more accurate way to say it. We have inherited the consequences of original sin. Well, this points to the profound connection between physical realities and spiritual realities. We don't bat an eye in terms of acknowledging that we inherit physical realities from our parents and grandparents and great-great-grandparents and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with uh, these tests that you can get done today of Ancestry.com mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, a little swab from your inner cheek 
and with some measure of accuracy, not infallible accuracy, but they can they can go back countless numbers of generations to where your genes came from mm. by analyzing your spit. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's it's in the genes, it's in the DNA, the physical traits that we acquire from our ancestors. Mm-hmm. Well, theology of the body, the basic principle is that the physical is the sign of the spiritual. Mm. There are spiritual realities that are inherited right in the blood, right in the act of conception. Mm -hmm. It's not just a physical reality. It's a spiritual reality. Original sin created a a moral slash spiritual state for our first parents of separation from God, an inclination to choose things less than God to fulfill the desire in their hearts that only God can fulfill. And that's what sin is. The catechism defines mortal sin very interestingly. It says, when we sin mortally, that means in a, in a serious way that's, that if we stay in that place without repentance, we have chosen something other than God for eternity. That, that's what a mortal sin is. The catechism says, we sin mortally when we choose a lesser good than God to fulfill what only God can fulfill. In other words, we have this God-shaped hole. We have this ache in us that is made for God. And when we make choices that say, I'm going to this thing over here to fulfill this desire that only God can fulfill, I'm not going to take it to God. I'm going to go to this. That's the very nature of evil. The very nature of evil, interestingly enough, is to choose a lesser good than God. Isn't that interesting wording? To choose a lesser good than God to fulfill what only God can fulfill. This is the state of original sin. We have an inclination. Our first parents, when they chose a lesser good to God, they placed themselves in a spiritual state of separation from God with an inclination now in their hearts to choose things other than God to fulfill what only God can fulfill. That got in their blood, so to speak, because of the profound unity of body and soul. Their offspring acquire not only their physical traits, they also acquire that spiritual inheritance of an inclination to sin. Strictly speaking, Victoria, you did not commit the original sin. I did not commit the original sin. Our first parents, whoever they were, committed the original sin. We don't know what that sin was exactly. It's shrouded in mystery. But we have, because we are their offspring, we have inherited not only physical, but also spiritual traits from them. That's my food for thought on the first part of the question. The second part of the question was, uh, what does it mean that Jesus paid for our sins? Mm-hmm. Is that am I right on That's that? That's what you said. Uh-huh. So Victoria, I find it interesting your name here. Your name is Victoria. You are named after Christ's victory, and I'm going to point you in a direction uh, maybe a little unfamiliar to listeners out there, but I would urge you to read Cardinal Ratzinger. He became Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. In his book, Introduction to Christianity, which is a a seminal work, which has had a wide influence on on Catholic theology over the last 50 years, he wrote it in the late 60s, he has some interesting cautions uh, 
about this idea of reducing the crucifixion to merely this idea of Jesus paying the price for our sins. There is certainly a sense that is appropriate to say Jesus paid the price for our sins. Well, what is the sense that it's appropriate? The wages of sin is death. It's not so much like, if you do this, I'm going to kill you, but rather the natural consequence of sin, which is a choice away from God, and if God is the source of life and we choose apart from him in a definitive way, we are separating ourselves from the very source of life. It's like if you t- pick an apple from the tree, it's going to die. If you cut flowers off from their roots, they're eventually going to die. If you cut a tree away from its roots, it's eventually going to die. That's the very consequence of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, right? Christ paid those wages, if you will. When he died, he absorbed the price of our sin, if you will. We are bought with the price, St. Paul says. So there is that sense of Jesus paying for our sins, which is important in the Christian tradition. But Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict XVI, he cautions us reducing the crucifixion merely to that. There is so much more to what happened on the cross than merely the paying for our sins. And here I'll draw from Augustine and anyone familiar with my work, you've heard me say this many, many times before. The cross is the marriage bed where Jesus consummates his union with us. The same Pope Benedict XVI who said, uh, just expressed that caution about reducing the crucifixion to Jesus paying for our sins. He also said, is there any more mad eros E-R-O-S, is there any more mad desire of the bridegroom for his bride, that's Eros, right, than what is exemplified in Christ the bridegroom, in whom we see this desire for such profound oneness with his bride, that the bridegroom is willing to take upon himself the penalty for the bride's offenses. Here we see Pope Benedict bringing together this idea of paying a price on the cross with this profound mystery of spousal love. And I think that mystery of spousal love opens up to us a dimension of the cross that most people don't really spend time thinking about. But if we do spend time thinking about it, it will illuminate the whole of our faith, the whole of our own creation as male and female in ways that will change your life forever. Yeah, I think it's so beautiful, Victoria, that you decided to ask this question on our podcast. I like the way you just introduced it, that it's very close to your heart and that it's haunted you. Yeah. And just those images that you chose to share in your question really touched me. That um, just says you have a very sensitive heart, that the truth of faith, you want it all to make sense. You want it to settle within you in a peaceful, beautiful way. And when it's not all settled, you know, that there's a, a longing for that answer. I think it's beautiful, and I hope that what we, you know, especially Christopher has shared about some of the theology that sort of getting more specific about what is meant by that, that that comes into that place in in your heart that just longs for 
the Lord to be all in all mm-hmm. in your heart, you know, and, and until these questions are answered, there's a, there's a little barrier there. So, I pray for that barrier to come down, for that filling in with the presence of your Savior will just be a joy to your heart and to all our listeners. Victoria, I'll, I'll hold this out to you as well in light of what Wendy was saying in maybe bringing some resolution to those questions that have haunted you for so long. I hope this resonates with you. I don't know, Victoria, whether you're a fan of the movie Titanic, but I'll often bring this out to my students. I'll say, what was it that made Titanic one of the most successful movies of all time? And why was it women in particular who flocked to see that movie? And then I'll quote, from my friend Jeff Cavins, who says, what are, what are we to think that all of a sudden women around the world had a strange fascination with large boats? <laughs> and obviously, no, that's not what attracted women to this movie. It was Jack. Mm-hmm. And it was the fact that Jack laid down his life unto death for Rose out of love. Mm-hmm. He saw Rose's value. He saw her dignity. And this goes back to a line in the movie when uh, Rose is paging through Jack's sketches. He's an artist and he would sketch people. And she was looking at these sketches with, with a sense of awe and marvel and wonder. And she says, Jack, you, you see people. Mm. And he looks up at her and he says, I see you. <laughs> When you see someone, you realize that this person is so valuable. This person is worth laying my life down for if I were ever called to do such a thing. And Jack was called to do such a thing. Uh, what, what women are attracted to in Jack is Jesus. That's the Christ story. Mm. That's what Christ did on the cross. He laid down his life in love for us because he saw, he saw us. Mm. He saw how valuable, Victoria, he sees you. Mm-hmm. He knows your true value. And he, he bled for you because he loves you so. I, I hope that that lands in your heart maybe in a new way and uh, it, can, it can blossom for you as you continue to unfold and and continue to ask those questions. Uh, They'll never be fully answered in this life, but Jesus promises if we seek, we shall find. And we are finding ourselves right now running out of time. So we will leave the questions there. We invite you, please, if you want to submit a question, you can go to askchristopherwest.com and do so. You can also leave a review. We love to hear that. Please support the work of the Theology of the Body Institute by considering becoming a patron of this mission. And we have lots of goodies for those who support this work. And yes, Wendy, what did you want uh, yeah, to say? Yeah, you were talking about we have things for those who support our work. And it reminded me that I'd love for our listeners to know about the book, Good News About Sex and Marriage, because it is a question and answer book that you have written and that answers some of the questions that are on people's minds and hearts 
some sexual morality questions in a particular way. That We get into the nitty-gritty. Yes, and some of it isn't appropriate for us to just talk about yeah. on a podcast. And I just, as you're mentioning, we have these resources and things available. I wanted to highlight that one in particular because I think our listeners could benefit from that. Thank you. Yeah, I, that was my first book. It first came out in 1999, but I recently updated it uh, just last year in light of how the culture has drastically changed it used to be 115 questions, and now it's, I think, like 144 of the most asked questions. So if there's ever something that you'd love for us to address that you haven't heard us address, or you've submitted a question a few months ago and we still haven't gotten it to it, chances are it is addressed in that book. So that'll be in the show notes, too. God bless you guys. Always remember, you are an indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift of life and love. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes. What are we to think that all of a sudden women around the world had a strange fascination with large boats. <laughs> and obviously, no, that's not what attracted women to this movie. It was atomic pumpkin voodoo ranger beer. <laughs>